Welcome to Change Agents. I'm Steve Wessler, a program where we will interview people who work on social justice and human rights issues, why they do their work, how they do their work, what's difficult, what's rewarding. My guest today is a remarkable woman, Sherry Mitchell. Sherry was born and raised in the, on the Penobscot Indian Reservation and lives in Maine. Sherry, what is remarkable to me about your work is its breadth. You are an author. You are a lawyer. You are an activist in protecting indigenous rights and environmental rights, a leader in cultivating and renewing traditional and ceremonial practices of indigenous people, the visionary behind healing the wounds of Turtle Island, a global ceremony to mend the relationships between people and between people and the rest of creation. And she's the host of her own radio program. So welcome. Thank you for having me, Steve. Uh, there's so many things that you do. I could start anywhere, but I'm, I'm interested in the work that you do in uh, protecting indigenous rights and environmental rights, which I also think are likely to, to be intertwined. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are intertwined. I mean, we're living at a time where environmental justice, indigenous rights, and human survival on the planet have all collided. So we're we're living in this nexus point where the protection of indigenous rights is now critical for the survival of life on the planet. Um, some of the last pristine places, some of our most critical ecosystems are lands that are... Um, the territory, traditional territory of indigenous peoples around the world. And it is only because they are in the hands of indigenous peoples that these lands remain untouched. And we're living at a time of crisis where um, our reliance upon these ecosystems is really the thread that's holding life together. We're seeing so many ecosystems unraveling around the world right now. Our climate is in a state of constant decline. And rather than coming together and addressing that in a way that what would ensure our survival, it seems that those in positions of power are actually accelerating the harms that are being done. They've, they've ramped up um, the levels of harm that are being done. And so right now what we're seeing is the rollback of some of our most important environmental protections running parallel to a renewed attack on the territorial rights of indigenous peoples. So it's a it's a very critical time, and and there's no separation between those issues. It really feels that there's a sense of urgency to your work. So I think it would be interesting to talk about one of those projects that you've done. Um, maybe one that's ongoing, or maybe one that is not. Yeah, I think that the. Um, the most impactful work that I'm doing right now is with an organization called Neotero. And um, it's an organization that has dedicated itself to the protection of indigenous land guardianship. So uh, we are working with populations across the planet, quite literally, where there are uh, really critical ecosystems in place and helping the indigenous peoples to um, maintain 
their connection to those lands and waterways and to also find a way to sustain themselves and um, to sustain themselves in ways that are connected to their cultural ways of being. Um, the Neotero group just came back from Kenya and um, they're working with people in Amazonia. They're, you know, there's, there's work being done in the Pacific Islands where um, some of these uh, places where uh, there is the greatest threat to the maintenance of these critical ecosystems. And so working with uh, that organization on the ground in real ways, um, putting considerable amounts of money into the projects that are being led by the indigenous peoples, creating networks of protections around them um, with the local and state governments, um, and also creating a storytelling platform for the stories of the indigenous peoples um, of those territories to be heard around the globe uh, to help humanize them. Because oftentimes what happens is uh, there's just this um, indistinct group that is um, purposely dehumanized, caricaturized, and um, it makes the taking of those lands critically important. So uh, I think that that, in regard to indi both indigenous and um, environmental rights, that work right there is probably the most important work that I'm doing um, right now. And uh, also working still on um, the protection of San Francisco Peaks in Arizona, which is a sacred site to more than a dozen tribes where um, the, the location has been um, made into a ski resort in the state of Arizona, which is absolutely absurd in and of itself. Um, and they're uh, purposely degrading the environment there uh, in order to expand business because what happens um, through that is that they're able to push the indigenous peoples off the land because they're using the property in a way that is actually um, creating uh, scenarios that make it prohibitive for the indigenous peoples to perform their ceremonies or to collect medicinal plants um, in that land because they're using uh, reclaimed wastewater on on the mountain to make snow. Um, and in that particular area, there is um, one plant that is that grows only in that region um, that is on the endangered list and and none of the protections that have been put in place are stopping them from moving forward with that expansion. Are you making any progress at this point? I think that there's progress being made in some of the um, indigenous communities that we're working with on land guardianship. Uh, there are some inroads that are being made uh, the challenge with that is that um, we're up against these nation states who are more often than not complicit in the violations of indigenous peoples. And so you look around the world and you look at uh, what's going on where indigenous peoples are coming to stand for the protection of their homelands. They're being blatantly murdered. Uh, there was just a sentencing for... Um, seven men who were found to be responsible for the killing of um, a Honduran activist. And those those individuals who were complicit in that killing 
um, were acting on behalf of industrial actors. And so uh, we don't see the corporations being held accountable for these mergers. Um, there were just two Brazilian um, activists who were gunned down after meeting with an electric company in the protection of, of their territory. So um, while there is progress being made, we also have this kind of vigilante um, rogue network of uh, corporatists who are involved in the in the killing of the indigenous peoples who are standing. So it adds a layer of complexity to the work. Yeah, I I'm, was thinking about well, where the resistance comes from, and it comes from the business community. Um, it comes from vigilantes. Mm -hmm. uh, does it also come from local law enforcement? And uh, maybe even particularly thinking about the San Francisco Peak work. Well, it's the National Forest Service and the USDA who are responsible for granting those permits. And uh, the the statement that just went out uh, just the other day, it was just completed the other day, that just went out, um, signed by my organization and another a number of others, uh, actually outlined all the ways that they had failed to meet their requirements and to complete their due diligence as protectors of that territory. They fast-tracked permits. They um, shortcutted their environmental reporting and investigations on that. And so um, the environmental impact statement was never completed properly. They haven't taken into consideration the plant life that's there that's endangered. Um, and so uh, when you have uh, those who are charged with enforcement in situations like that, uh, who are turning a blind eye and fast-tracking industrial practices, uh, there's nobody left to go to um, and, and to lodge complaints. And in the U.S., has that fast-tracking sped up in the last three-plus years? Absolutely. I mean, some of this stuff has just been rubber-stamped for a long time. But in the last two years, I mean, we've seen the unraveling of environmental protections across the board taking us back 40 or 50 years. And so um, when you're dealing with that kind of damage control, it's hard to make forward movement because everything that you're doing is reactionary to try to stop uh, the unraveling of um, the harms that are coming at you. I think it's also important to note, and this is something that I think is really critically important for the people of Maine to understand, is that a lot of corporations are dumping uh, huge amounts of money into local law enforcement. So one of the things that I often encourage people to do is to really look at their town ordinances and to pass ordinances prohibiting their local police departments from accepting corporate funding because we have um, this situation where all of this really heavy-duty militarized equipment is being given to police forces um, in small communities, and it's generally done in advance of them coming in with some type of environmentally destructive project. I mean, we saw that come to a head in South Dakota, uh, I mean, North Dakota, excuse me, at Standing Rock, where you had all of these um, law enforcement agencies who had received large amounts of money from uh, corporations, and in addition to uh, militia for hire, 
that were there on the ground, um, really brutalizing the people who were exercising their rights to assemble peacefully to um, protest the activity that was taking place there. It's what you've just talked about is deeply disturbing, and I wonder whether the the indigenous groups that you are working with are how do they keep their energy and spirit up? It just feels that there are so many barriers that now have always existed, but they are increasing. I really think that it comes down to fundamental belief. Uh, for me, uh, the the impetus for driving the work that I do is really um, the beliefs that I have, the way of life that I have been raised with. And so I feel that I have an obligation to protect life. I have been raised with this foundational belief that it is my responsibility to ensure that life continue, not only for myself, but for those who will come after me, and that I have a responsibility to um, the beings in the natural world who have the same right to life that I have, to ensure that my activities, my conduct is not compromising their way of life. And so when we're um, looking at the indigenous populations who are standing up, they have a relationship, a kinship relationship with the lands and the waterways and the wildlife that uh, occupies the lands that that they are making their home on. And so when you have that kind of kinship relationship, when you have this, um, what we call uh, in Dilnabama, you know, like all of my relations, this understanding that uh, we are related to all life and that we are responsible in a familial way to care for all life, then it um, becomes a necessity. And so right now, Everybody that I talk to all over the world has this deep understanding that now the time is more critical than ever to be making these stands, even at the expense of their own lives, because they realize that all life is in danger. And I want to come back to that, that kinship. Um, but just to remind people, you're listening to Change Agents. I'm Steve Wessler, and my guest today is... Sherry Mitchell, who was born and raised on the Penobscot Indian Reservation, is an advocate for indigenous people and for protecting the environment, is a healer, a lawyer, and a writer. I've read a number of things on, that you've written on your website, and you are an extraordinarily beautiful writer. and. If it's okay with you, I'd like to read um, uh, something that really, I think, connects to what you were saying about the kinship. Uh, yeah, first of all, thank you, and yes, please okay. go ahead. So now I'm reading from your writing. For several months, I had been deepening my ability to see the life force that permeates our world. As I was sitting there, I noticed a teeny ant crawling across a blade of grass. As I watched the ant move along, his little body began to light up. Then the blade of grass that he was walking on lit up. And as I sat there and watched, the entire area surrounding me began to light up. I slowly raised my eyes and the entire field became illuminated, as did the trees on the other side of the field lining the forest. Every bird that flew into my line of vision had an added layer of light surrounding it. 
I sat very still, quietly, marveling over this newfound sight, afraid to move and lose it. While I sat there observing my new, newly illuminated world, I noticed something intriguing. The field of light that I was seated in was rising and falling in unison. As I watched the earth breathe around me, I felt my own breathing fall in the harmony with it. Everything became sharper. All of my senses became alive. While I sat there breathing with the world around me, the firm lines of my being began to fade. I felt myself expanding and merging with all that I was observing. There was suddenly no separation between me, the ant, the grass, the trees, the birds. We were breathing with one breath, beating with the pulse of one heart. I was consumed by this achingly beautiful, complete sense of kinship with the entire creation. This single moment of open awareness allowed all of us the teachings that I have been raised with to sink deeply into my heart. I got it. Mm. It's, it's just an extraordinary picture that you've drawn. Mm. That's one of the moments that I call eviction points in my life where you have an experience that completely evicts you from the life you were living the moment before you had it. You can never go back. And so that was one of those moments for me where um, I knew that I could never go back to being the person I was the moment before I had had that experience because I understood that I am part of one living system, that I am connected to life more than in just these metaphorical ways, that there is a tangible living connection that threads us all together. And so my, my sense of, um, of relatedness, my sense of... Um, I guess, responsibility, but it's, it's much more than that. I mean, my sense of, of deep, deep connection and love for the rest of creation was solidified for me in that moment. And that's extraordinary, but what, what takes it to a different realm is that you've shared that with us. Mm -hmm. And while as a reader or as a listener, uh, we may not... Be able to, we may not be able to get to the same place that you are, but we get closer than we've ever been. And mm -hmm. so what you do with your writing is a gift. Thank you very much. Um, and, and I really do believe that we can all get there. Uh, I don't think that that's something that uh, is reserved to a few. I think that we all have the capacity to get there. It's just that we've been so distracted and moved away from the true measure of our being, right? We've been moved away from our own control over our capacity for expansion. Uh, we, we lose sight of, of what we're actually capable of. And you describe your work um, in ways of traditional advocacy and non-traditional advocacy, but that is connected to something spiritual, which maybe is a good segue to talk about the project that you have created called Healing the Turtle Island, and maybe explain to people what that is. Yeah, Healing the Wounds of Turtle Island is a ceremony. It's a 21-year ceremony uh, that is born out of a prophecy from our territory here in uh, Wabanaki, uh where um, we have been instructed that... Uh, the time when there was first contact between 
the indigenous peoples and the newcomers to this land, um, they met under what's known as the Eastern Spiritual Doorway. And so under that doorway um, is where uh, all life enters into this world. And so what's created under that doorway is given life. And then it moves toward the West, uh, which is the gateway that leads us out of this world. And so when we look at what was created under this doorway um, through that first clash of cultures, uh, we see that the relationship that was formed there was formed in blood and incredible violence and deception. And that that framework um, for those types of relationships uh, being developed was then actually transferred not only through to the West in this country, but it's been uh, exported out around the world where the mistreatment, the genocide, um, the destruction of indigenous ways of being uh, and indigenous persons um, is a model that continues to be um, proliferated. And so uh, Healing Turtle Island is providing us with an opportunity to come back to that place under that eastern doorway um, for the first four years of the ceremony and to uh, make a new spiritual contract with one another so that we can begin something new and birth something new together that can then travel um, and shift and change the ways that we've been relating with one another and with the rest of life. And who are the people that are connecting? Is it just in indigenous people? Is it, is it much broader? It's much broader. Um, the first year that we uh, held the ceremony, we, we didn't know who was going to come. We just put out the call and said, this is what we're doing. We're going to be hosting this ceremony. This is why we're hosting the ceremony. There's all kinds of things that led up to it. The huge story that we could talk the whole hour about um, relating to the creation and the unfolding of arriving in that place. And we ended up um, having 900 people from six continents show up the first year. And it's grown every year since. And so, um, as I said, it's a 21-year ceremony. It's four years in the east, four years in the south, four years in the west, four years in the north. All those prayers from all of those directions will be bundled in the center um, of the country for four years. And then on the 21st year, it'll come back here to close the cycle um, back under that eastern doorway. Are the numbers of people who are um, coming from indigenous communities um, close, higher, but to the number of people who come perhaps were coming from the colonial power? No, I think that it's pretty equal that we have um, indigenous peoples that are coming from all over, and the numbers of indigenous peoples that are coming has actually been increasing every year. Um, in the year coming up, this this coming year, we're going to have uh, Indigenous peoples from a number of different parts of the world who are going to come in and we're going to all enter into a treaty together, a spiritual contract, to um, begin working together on addressing some of these deep needs for healing. I, I imagine that during, the, is it a multi-day? Yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in this multi-day event, there are some hard conversations and there's some magical conversations. Is there, is there one interaction or uh, that, um, that might sort of exemplify the promise of 
Jordan Wineland to make change? Well, it's a ceremony, so it's not a conference or, you know, a social gathering. It, we're in ceremony for the time that we're there together. And I think that the most profound experience that I can relate um, is one where we had a healing ceremony for those who were in attendance to heal the trauma that they carried, which was very powerful. And then we opened up the circle um, spiritually to invite the ancestors in to lay down their trauma in that circle and to heal them as well. And when we um, held that ceremony, I had uh, probably 400 emails that I received within the two months following the ceremony, in addition to the people that were at the ceremony who came up and talked to me personally, um, who had for the first time in their lives had an experience where they had uh, direct sight of spirit. They actually saw their ancestors walking into that circle. And um, when you have something that happens like that, that seems um, so uh, in regard to uh, this contemporary thinking, so completely um, magical, right? uh, unbelievable, then um, you know that something really special is happening because you know there are there are uh, certainly people leading the ceremonies who have had those experiences for a good part of their lives, but when you have people coming together who aren't seeking that kind of experience, who didn't anticipate that kind of experience, who have had that experience, and it has instantly changed their lives. I mean, the, the ways that people are responding to what's happening to them there spiritually in the outer world has been phenomenal. And I imagine that you also hear from people perhaps months afterwards about not only what's changing from them, but what may be changing with the people in their families or that they are sharing with. Absolutely. And in fact, I just got a, a message from um, somebody yesterday who was still processing their experience and it was still unfolding for them from last year's Healing Turtle Island gathering. And I do get hundreds and hundreds of messages from people who are um, having their lives changed in ways that they didn't anticipate. You know, and we do we do say as a disclaimer at the at the ceremony that um, you know there are things that are going to change in your life as a result of you participating in this work, and it's going to unfold over a long period of time. And uh, all the ways that that has happened for people is impossible to be able to relate because there are just way too many stories. Um, but what is encouraging to me is the people who are actually taking that and going back to their home territories and creating their own circles, creating their own networks, doing real work uh, in their communities to address climate change, to address uh, misuse of power, to look at the ways that they're living and how they can reduce their impacts, look at the ways that they're relating to one another and build um, circles of communication that improve that and, and networks of kinship. Um, in their territories, that that has been astounding to me because there's been some really amazing work that's being done by people um, who have participated in the ceremony in their home territories. And I imagine those ripple effects continue, um, and for years. Um, what a what a remarkable program. 
yeah, what, ceremony that you are doing. What gets me every year is looking around and looking at the children. I mean, we're going into the fourth year, so there are some um, children that are there that were in their mother's womb during the first year, and then they come back the second year as babies, and then uh, they come back the third year, and they're toddling around. And, and to see those young people who are being born at this time, for this time, being raised in that circle, being uh, knowing that this is a 21-year ceremony and that these young people are going to grow up with that as part of their foundation, um, you know, makes me cry every single year. Uh, it's just a beautiful thing to think that we have opened the doorway for something that is really taking on a life of its own and creating itself that we get to bear witness to is really profoundly beautiful. Thank you. Um, you were listening to Change Agents. I'm Steve Wessler, and in Change Agents, uh, I interview people who are fighting and struggling for human rights and for improving social justice issues. And my guest is Sherry Mitchell, who was born and raised on the Penobscot Indian Reservation, is an advocate for indigenous people and for protecting the environment, is a healer, a lawyer, and a writer. So... We we talked about some of the work that you've been been doing, uh, focusing on um, important sites for indigenous people that are being um, torn apart. Um, you do some of that as a lawyer, as I understand, through and is some of that through the um, the, the Land Peace Foundation. Yes. Uh, so primarily the work that it's being done through the Land Peace Foundation is looking at sacred sites protection, access to ceremonial sites, uh, traditional medicinal plants. Um, I work with a group of indigenous spiritual elders from all over the Americas and help to bring their voices into some of these um, policy uh, discussions and um, these flawed and oftentimes uh, completely illusory um, consent discussions because consent is, be is, a, is an important legal term that has fallen out of the um, practice, uh, especially in this country and in Canada, um, where free prior and informed consent is a legal requirement for anyone doing any type of work that impacts indigenous people's lives. And, um, and that, that consent piece has just slowly um, been erased out of the language without any formal removal. It's just been ignored and allowed to go by the wayside. And so looking at those types of issues and demanding that there be the process that is required under the law um, has been the primary thrust of, of that work through the Land Peace Foundation. And, and the foundation is a nonprofit organization with lawyers. Uh, you're a lawyer mm -hmm. as well. Um, how, many, how many people do you have who are working with you? Well, we work with a number of different organizations. Um, 
I primarily run the Land Peace Foundation and work in collaboration with a number of partners, the Spirit Foundation, um, uh, Ancient Trees Foundation, and a number of other organizations that are doing similar work. We collaborate on um, much of what's being done. Uh, we have a very, very lean budget. It's very, very, very hard to find um, funding for this work. And oftentimes, um, we're struggling to keep our doors open, let alone expand our staff. And so um, it, it's, it's pretty lean. And the amount of work that we actually get done, considering the leanness of the budget and the people power that we have, uh, is pretty incredible. And is there a particular um, issue that you and some of the other lawyers, as well as the, the, the chiefs of various um, um, nations are that you are focusing on right now? Is there a particular one you could describe to put, put, give a little bit of flesh on what it is you're doing? Well, like I said, we're doing work on a number of different fronts. And right now, primarily what we're working on is mitigation of harm because the harms are coming at us so fast and so furiously. We can't keep up with all of them. Um, and there are a number of indigenous organizations that are doing this work. And um, oftentimes uh, the big flamboyant uh, messaging that goes out that, that gains a lot of attention puts those people who are on the front lines of those issues at risk. And so um, one of the things that, that we are really careful about in regard to doing the work that we do is to not um, compromise the safety of those that we're working with. And so we don't um, look for sensationalized opportunities to promote particular issues uh, because people are literally are disappearing, right? People are literally being killed uh, who are doing some of these um, frontline protections. And uh, we see the brutalization that happened at Standing Rock and it played out uh, on social media for everyone to see. And there were a lot of people who didn't even bat an eye, who didn't think that there was anything wrong with people uh, being sprayed with these high-pressure hoses, water cannons at, you know, 20 degrees. There likely will be a number of people who are listening to this show who don't really know what happened at Standing Rock. And um, if you're able to explain what happened uh, and what there was your and others' responses, I think would be very helpful. I think the WERU listenership has had a lot of opportunity to learn about Standing Rock. And so what happened at Standing Rock is that um, the... the um, Sioux tribe initially stood up and um, tried to stop a pipeline being constructed by Dakota Access Pipeline that not only threatened their waterway but went through a sacred ceremonial site where uh, there had been a massacre of their people 300 years earlier and where the bones of their ancestors were laid to rest there in that place. And so they had been working to stop the pipeline from going through because it went underneath a waterway that literally provided water for millions of people in a multi-state area. And um, the stand continued to grow larger and larger as the corporation brought in police and militarized forces to um, attack the people. 
There were people who were attacked with dogs, including a pregnant woman who was attacked with a, a, a dog who was being held on a leash by one of these, um, in quotes, law enforcement officials. Um, there were people who were shot with um, rubber bullets. There were concussion grenades that were being thrown at people. A young woman's arm was nearly blown off from one of those that was thrown at her from close range. The people were being sprayed with something from helicopters. They were being sprayed in the middle of the winter with water cannons um, in sub-zero temperatures. Uh, they were being terrorized, the people at the camp, by helicopters who were shining lights and making noise so that people couldn't sleep. I mean, it was forms of torture, really. Uh, and this was all happening on U.S. soil. And uh, eventually the military forces and the police forces came in and, and drove everybody out. Um, there are people who were arrested whose charges were falsified, who are still in jail to this day, some of them facing lengthy sentences for simply standing up peacefully to protect um, the waterway and that sacred site. And so one of the things that happened that I think is, is one of the important things, there's so many important moments that happened there is that when the tribe submitted an injunction to prevent them from harming their burial site, um, on the weekend, while that injunction was pending, um, the company Dakota Access went in and bulldozed all of their graves. And so when you have that kind of disrespect and that dishonor um, at the foundation where not only are those who were massacred at one point in time, but are being completely dishonored and disrespected again in death, while their descendants are being brutalized by the same government force that brutalized them to begin with, we realize how much work we still have left to do, that we still have a great distance to travel. When you <clears throat> mentioned that this was torture come uh, in the readings that I've gotten on what's happened on Guantanamo and in Abu Ghraib, it's some of the exact same tactics mm -hmm. that were being used. Right. Um, it's, uh, it's beyond shameful. Yeah. And it's also important to note that there have been hundreds of thousands of gallons of uh, oil that have been spilled from that pipeline that have since contaminated the waterways, so um, exactly what the people were standing to try to prevent has actually occurred. And now there are other stands going on, Line 3 in Minnesota is an important um, stance that's going on. There's a number going on in Canada where they're trying to bring these pipelines down through the United States from Canada um, to try to stop them. And, um, you know, we have a significant incredibly worrisome water crisis going on around the world. I just read a story this morning where in Queensland they have no water because these water extraction companies are coming in and uh, sucking up all the groundwater and then holding it hostage so that the people who live in the places where this water exists don't have access to it and they have to buy it back. They have to buy back the water that's there. Um, and then we have this wide-scale contamination through these pipelines and the destruction and removal of water from our water table through hydrofracking that, um, you know, everybody needs to be paying attention to what's going on with the water right now. You know, e each of the projects 
and work types of work you do seem like they're a they're enough for one person to be able to do when you're doing so many and and there's still more guy you practice law uh, representing people uh, in uh, the Penobscot tribe I have a small legal contract with the with the nation to represent one of the nation's um, agencies in court and the the only cases that I tend to take when I have time in my schedule to take them um, are cases for tribal members who need representation um, it's hard to say for any of this kind of work that there's something that it's not enjoyable, but it's. Um, but I know, in in my career, when I was actually representing individual people, there was something that's so satisfying on that. It's it's moving from very large issues to individual issues that are just as important. Yeah, I think that there's so much of the work that I do out in the world that. Um, I do quietly because of the nature of the work and um, sometimes when you get caught up in those really large issues when you're looking at what's going on in other continents right and you're addressing some of these really large-scale critical issues that are um, impacting decision-making on a global scale uh, you can get lost in that, and you can forget where you come from. And so the reason why I continue to do that work uh, is so that I can always remember where I come from and so that I'm contributing something back to the community that raised me up because I, I didn't rise up in a vacuum. There was an entire community that helped to raise me and support me and to help me to become who I am. And so... It's important to do that, and so I'm doing that through that work and also through the fellowship program that uh, we're unrolling this year. Yeah, when you talk about knowing where you came from, I find too many people that I talk to and that I work with don't know where they came from. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, literally, they don't know where their families came from, and others, it's more spiritually, they, they don't. And I wonder if moving on to another part of what you do, because you're a writer, whether your writing helps people try to center themselves on where they came from. I think some of the most humbling experiences that I've had in the last 18 months um, have been with individuals who have reached out to me and contacted me uh, because the what they found in my book, Sacred Instructions, um, Sacred Instructions, Indigenous Wisdom for Living Spirit-Based Change, um, the, what they found in that has provided them with a compass, um, has grounded them. I was speaking uh, in a different state recently, and a young man uh, came to the talk with his uncle and uh, told me that um, his uncle had given him the book and at a time when he was um, close to relapsing in his addiction recovery and that it had become um, like a Bible to him and that he read from it every single day and what he found in there was giving him 
what he needed to do the inner work that was required for him to truly come to a place of healing and then um, you know that story stays with me along with hundreds of other similar stories that I've heard from people and so um, what that tells me is that our experiences of traveling through the challenges and the mire that we all seem to have been enmeshed in are very similar and so that me sharing my story and my pathway um, has helped other people to find their own pathways and um, I think that that is something that uh, is so critically important for people to realize that when you share your own truth, when you're vulnerable, when you can show up as your whole self and share that experience with others, that it does actually give others permission to stand and to do the same for themselves and for those who are in their sphere. And so we're all connected in that way. And so I think that that's that's been a really profoundly humbling and beautiful experience for me since the book came out. And I would imagine without those stories, both from your book but from all the other work you do, your work would be that much harder. It's it's demanding because I, I would love to be able to personally respond to and sit with all of the people that reach out to me, but I just can't do it's humanly impossible for me to do that and um and i i do need to be able to remember some of the advice that i gave in the book which is about self-care that i need downtime i need time with my own family um, i need time to restore and renew and recover my own sense of well-being um in the work and so um, it's been it's been rewarding but at the same time it's difficult because i i feel bad about every single uh, time I have to say no, but I have to set boundaries because uh, if I don't, then I'm I'm just uh, going to give myself away to the point where there's nothing left of me. So what what is what's the hardest part of this work for you? I think the hardest part of the work is realizing that in many cases, especially in dealing with some of these just heart-wrenching um, and sometimes soul-sucking situations where um, people who are standing up asking for nothing more than the right to live and the right to secure the sources of their survival are being killed, are being brutalized, and that we currently do not have because we, as human beings, by common agreement, have allowed our um, systems and our structures to have been taken over by forces that are not concerned with our well-being. Um, we have no, uh, no system in place, no structure in place that can provide recourse. And so you, it seems at times an act of futility to be mounting uh, these legal challenges, uh, to be preparing statements for the UN, to be um, doing all of these things that the system tells you are the right things to do, knowing that there's no enforcement of the laws on the books right now as it pertains to environmental protection or indigenous rights. Um, and there are no teeth in the international mechanisms um, for the protections of human rights or indigenous rights. And certainly we're seeing um, now that there's uh, 
there's none to be found in the environmental work. We just learned um, the other night that um, that the protections, all of the language in Article 6 pertaining to the protections of human rights and indigenous rights in the Paris Agreement have been removed. And so uh, people think that this is this wonderful uh, agreement that's going to help the environment, but all it really is is a cap-and-trade market that's been created for the exchange of our air. And, um, and as a result of that, human rights are being violated across the globe. Uh, we're seeing the largest taking of indigenous lands as a result of that um, cap-and-trade market being created. We're seeing the destruction of indigenous habitat um, where um, corporations are planting these um, GMO fields and crops and destroying the natural plants and um, other living beings that are in those ecosystems for the sake of profit for one, and also for the ability to be able to continue polluting. So across the board, the futility sometimes of the efforts that we're making um, can be s truly disheartening. But we have to realize that that we are reaching the hearts and minds of a lot of people. A lot more people are rising up. Uh, the young people are rising up and demanding that we do something to ensure their survival into the future. I had a conversation a number of years ago with a human rights advocate in, in Europe who was advocating on LGBTQ issues. And, uh, and she said that she knew, um, and she was probably 40 years old at that point, that she will not live to see the changes she needs in her country. But she keeps on doing it. Right. Um, and for many people, um, that's hard. It is hard because we live in a just-at-water society. And so we want instant satisfaction. We want to see instant change. Um, we don't know how to um, walk the long path that our ancestors laid out for us. And so that's impacting us in regard to our sense of hopelessness with the change that we're working toward where people are having this really elevated sense of hopelessness because we've conditioned um, to, uh, we've been conditioned by instant soup, right? And so we uh, want to see things change rapidly. But if you think about who we inherited the work from, uh, generation upon generation of people, uh, where they were and the changes that have resulted today, are astronomical, the amount of distance that's been traveled. And so they may not have lived, but what they did was instrumental in us being able to experience the type of openness that we're seeing in the commons for these types of discussions, um, the type of progress that we've been seeing in regard to breaking down barriers between people and across um, different movements where there's been this um, solidarity that's been established across a number of movements that we hadn't seen in the past. Um, all of that foundational work was was laid down by those who are no longer here. And and I'm always taken aback, but I hear it far more often than I would have thought. Talking to somebody who's living in poverty and is being uh, oppressed by law enforcement and and by the community, mm -hmm. and uh, and talking to them about 
a project that won't help them? And their answers are, we're not going to make change unless we start somewhere and we're, we're willing to be the first people even if it's not going to reap benefits for us. And I, it strikes me that, that for some of your work, that's true for you and for others, you're making change right. every, every minute of every day. Well, we also don't know how long we have to live, right? So um, we're just rolling out this leadership program for Wabanaki leaders because most of the leadership programs that are out there are really colonially based, and we wanted something that was based in an indigenous worldview, an indigenous way of being. Um, those, the long plan for that is, uh, you know, 15 to 30 years down the road, having an incredibly strong network of competent, well-skilled, and well-networked leaders. And so even that, in relation to the other work that's being done, is kind of a short-term goal. And so when we think about um, getting people to make all of these micro-movements to shift the way that they're living on the earth, the way that they're living in relationship to one another, understanding the barriers and the ingrained thinking that has kept them separated and how it's all an illusion. And it's been purposely constructed to keep us apart. Um, all of those micro movements that are part of that work that I have you know, committed myself to, those things are going to unravel on a much longer arc uh, than even this work that we're looking at for 15, 30 years out. Um, and and at the heart of all of that is our ability to be able to survive. And so there's there's immediacy to to some of the work, but that doesn't mean that we stop doing the long the long planning work. And and that means working with young with young people. Absolutely. And I find that many young people don't know where they came from, but they know where they want to go. Mm. And hopefully, they'll learn where they came from. In the process, they're still fighting for, for justice. What I found is that the young people may not know where they've come from, but they certainly know why they're here, and they know what their purpose is, and they have engaged uh, in the work of doing what they were born for. Um, if there was one thing that you would say to a, to a young person who doesn't know their roots um, and is floundering and work down to the last minute. So mm -hmm. just a sentence or two that you might say of, for somebody who wants to do this work but feels untethered. I think that the, um, we can't deliver messages like this in a soundbite. And so I would encourage young people to uh, look for work that helps them to find their path um, and certainly you know would encourage young people to read my book um, but also to look at the work of people like um, Shie Bastida to look at work of Audrey Pelletier and these other young people who are courageously standing um, as their guideposts for moving forward. Well thank you Thank you, not just for that answer, and thank you for everything you've talked about, but most importantly, for the work you are doing on so many, so many different levels. Um, you've been listening today to change agents. Um, 
probing the work that courageous people like you do to advance human rights and environmental rights across not only Maine, but across the universe. Um, Maine is fortunate to have you. Um, and I look forward to speaking with uh, many other uh, inspirational human rights and social justice advocates as we move forward. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Steve, and, and I look forward to those conversations that you're going to be having as well. I'm Steve Wessler, and this is Chase Agents. You can find us at WERU on the first Thursday of every month at 4 p.m.